this week on the Backtable Podcast. You can develop a practice even if you don't do the AWARs. So that is possible. I encourage anybody who wants to be involved with the endolecanalization business to know their EMRs in and out. It's hard to just go and say, I'm just going to do this symbolization and not know even this, how this graph is placed or what are the components of the graph and um, you know what type of how, what particular issues are with this particular graph. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things IR and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. This is Sabine Don as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, interventional radiologist Dr. Sagar Sabri, coming to us from MedStar Georgetown Hospital. Welcome, Sagar. Hello, welcome, Sabine. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Well, before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RADPAD. RADPAD was developed by physicians for physicians, clinically proven radiation protection during CINE and digital subtraction and geography. Don't beg your career or your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD radiation protection shields for all your floral guided interventions. See radpad.com for more, interven- more information. Contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. Let them know you heard about it on Backtable Podcast. Sahar, do you use anything special for radiation protection or use the Radpad materials? Yeah, I've used them before and I think it's a, it's a really good material and um, especially for longer cases and, and it made a lot of adjustments to, um, to help uh, to make it more ergonomic and, and sits well on the table and not get in your way. So definitely... Invest in that early to, to kind of help your career as we get started. Don't get, we got to get a lot of radiation as we go. So, totally agree. Well, thanks again for joining us today and, and let's delve into our topic. So, we all know that EVAR follow up is, is a requirement. I mean, data across from Europe and US and the EVAR 1, OVAR, Dream Trials all show a higher need for re interventions of the EVAR group. Why are more re interventions needed for this endovascular group compared to the open surgical group? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the studies that you mentioned uh, definitely looked at several randomized, you know, studies um, over up to eight year period. And looking at these uh, EVAR in follow-up, most of them end up their intervention have to do with endoleaks. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to, it's a major issue that we have to deal with, and it's a way less um, uh, prevalent in, uh, in open. So uh, that's the main reason for re-interventions. Uh, I mean, if you look at the complications after, after open versus EVAR, it's higher um, in the open group in the first, you know, month and it evens out afterwards. And then, you know, especially when you look at mortality, for example, it, you know, earlier it's higher for the open group. And then, and over the five to eight year period, it evens out and it's the same for both. But the interventions are significantly higher for, for the EVAR group and because of the interleague. So that's why whenever we an EVAR in a patient, we have to be very clear up front that you're going to be getting follow-up routinely through the life of this stand that we place for you. So it's an investment and then it's, it goes into the decision-making to, to do a procedure, um, to do a treatment open, open versus, versus in the vascular. And, um, you know, you talked to a lot of patients who get frustrated from all the follow-up, but I think uh, an upfront discussion about it, it's going to be very important. 
Yeah, I think that's such a good point. I mean, whenever I see these patients and talk to them, you know, one of the things I, I make sure to mention is that you're going to be my patient for the rest of your life. And, and, and uh, you know, I make it clear that they're going to follow up with me, um, including anyone else who's on the team is taking care of them. So good point. So speaking of follow-up, you know, following these patients, what do you do for follow-up? I mean, from the point of placing the endograft, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll be interested to see how you do it as well. And, um, yeah. Seeking, we, um, we see them in month after, um, after the procedure and we get an imaging study just to make sure there's no major endoleak. Definitely, if, some, if we see an endoleak at the end of the procedure, especially if it's a top one that we've managed and we treated and so small persistent, then you definitely want to see them back. So one month is, is a good uh, starting point. And then after that, um, six months is the next... Uh, a month so on, they need to kind of come back for and then annually. And then, you know, and so unless there's something that we're worried about, we may give them continuous six months interval for like two years and then go annually. So, yeah. You know, you do some- we're very similar. I mean, um, as long as everything goes okay, we, we plan for a one month CTA. And then based on that one month, you know, if there's something odd or peculiar or something I don't like, I'll do a three month or I'll move to the six month and then uh, annually. Now, do you solely do CTAs for your um, follow-ups or do you use any other modalities like MRA or, or even ultrasound? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's in most of CTAs. And if somebody cannot get contrast because of kidney function, it's, um, I mean, a lot of non-contrast CT or ultrasound. Would do. But then you have to, you know, body habitus plays into it. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, depending on the soul that you have in your vascular lab. So um, I think... Uh, you know, doing ultrasound follow-up works out very well for the annual for annual visits. And you know, sometimes if somebody's like eight years out and such, and you can do it every other year with ultrasound, everything's stable. It's always worrisome because we've seen some of these, you know, lately develop, and you know, especially now we have you know, longer experience with sangrafts. And accused if you've seen this now that if that patient come, you know, up to eight years, 10 years after the EMR, and now they have a leak, which looks like a tattoo leak. And it's pretty unusual, right? Because a lot of these leaks happen early on and they disappear and you know, we watch them. So that's going to tell you why you need to follow this patient up, you know, for a long time with a big modality that would pick up. And anytime you have any change in size, you need to investigate it with either CTA or MRA to know exactly what's going on. Oh, yeah, it's funny you mention it. Just just this week, I saw a patient seven years out, and it was a new type two endoleak with enlargement of the sac, and the prior follows were negative. So it um you know it, it even raises a concern for some occult type one or something going on. So uh, it's you have to follow these patients. Speaking about ultrasound, you know, in my experience, and and this is not a knock on my hospital doing those sounds, but they, they're pretty terrible as far as like, not and so, it, you know, there's so much variation. And if we're looking at, you know, variables like half a milli, half a centimeter to a centimeter and change in a sack, I can measure it easily, you know, a centimeter different on the same image, you know, so it's, it's tough. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a, you know, and this is the elite, you know, it's, it's been hard to, to say much about it with ultrasound, but you know, I think yeah. it, it's, a general thing. Exactly. Exactly. But I like CTA. I think it gives us so much more information, just even about how the stent morphology, how it's sitting and everything. I mean, it's just, it's just better, but I think vascular surgery literature recommends that they could do ultrasound duplex and, and, uh, 
I just, I like to shy away from that. Yeah. I mean, I think in non-contrast CT gives me as much information to be with you. The radiation dose yeah. is minimal. Right? It can give you a, a good sense of the size and you can look at the integrity of the graph. You can see how far from the renals and make sure there's no, you know, distal migration or something like that. Totally. And what's interesting is in my hospital just recently, uh, we revised our MRA, uh, our, our contrast enhanced for MR guidelines. And now renal failure is not even in the consideration. So we're giving uh, contrast to patients with the low GFR in MR using our, our multi-hats. So I find it very helpful with, with really difficult leaking. Mm-hmm. You're just struggling with, sometimes you can do it with especially for the thoracic and you can, you know, do a, uh, you can find some really subtle leaks and try to find the source for them. So I, I use it for troubleshooting more than our routine. Perfect. So as far as these endo leaks that you're following, are these mostly patients that you have personally treated or are you getting referred uh, these endo leaks from outside your practice? You know, it depends what your practice is and, you know, um, you'd have that work for two different practices and, when you definitely do Sendrax, even the bulk of the you know, new leaks you're going to do are from the patients that you treat and you follow routinely. So the part of the team that places the, the Sendrax is great for practice building for both, right? For placement of the graph and then to do the follow-up. And um, to be part of that team is very important. Definitely, this is a big political issue. A lot of uh, practices, and eventually the artists um, are not as involved or it's hard for them to, to break through despite their experience. And this is it you know, a big, big issue. Um, and, uh, you know, there's just several ways to, to deal with it and, and to address it, um, to get involved in, in, in our placement teams or, or develop your own practice. Now, considering the leaks, the, you can develop a practice, practice even if you don't do the EWARs. So that is possible. I encourage anybody who wants to be involved in the endoleak immobilization business to know their EMRs in and out. It's hard to just go in and say, I'm just going to do this symbolization and not know even this, how this graph is placed or one of the components of the graph and, um, you know, what type and how, what particular issues are with this particular graph. So I strongly encourage anyone who wants to do the endoleak to study the endograph or well, even if you end up in a place and then you have to know everything in and out to be factor in it. So you can definitely work with, you know, investment surgeon in the in the or in the you know city you live in, uh, offer your expertise on especially if you could liquid embolics and, and some may not be comfortable with it, you can offer your expertise. You know, when I came into this practice, we do all the endographs in our hospital in conjunction with vascular surgery. So um, we share those cases. We're on one side of the table, they're on the other and, you know, we do them in IR or the OR. And so we share these patients, all of them. And so I kind of, I was lucky enough to join into this practice and that was already set in play. And I grew a fondness of aortas. So I kind of started growing it a little bit more and getting more referrals. But again, sharing them with vascular surgery. Now, our surgeons weren't comfortable with endovascular, you know, uh, treatment. So any follow-up like endo leaks, they just came to IR. And we generally use one type of graft uh, uh, in our hospital. So I'm very familiar with that. And I became very, you know, close to the reps for that graft too. And they saw that we were doing so many endo leaks. So then they started seeing, you know, when they were going to their other doctors that they weren't treating the endo leaks like we did. 
So they actually started referring them all throughout the LA area. They're like, hey, why don't you, you know, send to this guy? And so that's how, how I kind of built up a referral of endoleaks is actually through the rep who really helped. And now we get a lot of referrals all throughout the area. And it's, it's pretty cool. Um, and, uh, you know, we're lucky to have such a good relationship with vascular surgery at my institution. So that's kind of how I built it um, at, at PIH. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's great to hear. I think, yes, the rep, um, the underrated, you know, sorts of referrals. And I've used that before. And, um, and once you do a good job, you know, people start sending you and they, you know, they put you in contact with others, other physicians in the community who may not have a certain skill set that you can, you can offer, um, you know, most there. You know, for, for us, you know, best of surgeons send me a lot of these in the leaks, especially the more complex ones. And, um, you know, it's been, you know, a great part of our practice and to, to train our, you know, you know, future IRs um, on these to be comfortable when they go off. So. Totally. I mean, collaboration is key. And, and, you know, I know the majority of cases, there's a lot of diplomatic, um, you know, turf wars and, and, uh, you know, it's, but collaboration really helps with these and gives the best care to the patient. So, um, no, that's, that's great. That's, that's great to hear from your practice. Um, well, good. Well, let, you know, type one and type three endoleaks. I mean, I wanted to kind of start off with those and, uh, you know, pretty much, uh, there's not too much debate on management, but how, uh, what are type one and type three endoleaks and, uh, when do you see them and how do you manage them? Kind of just briefly. Yeah, just so, you know, quickly top one endoleak is when you have an issue with the seal, the proximal seal, it's the top one A, and the distal seal, and the iliac is the type one B leak. So, you know, these happen usually when, um, you know, the graft is not, you know, exactly at the renal artery level, or, you know, either undersized or eyes or didn't, you know, it didn't land exactly where you need it to be, and then achieve the seal. Um, these usually happen when you don't follow the instruction for use, also known as IQ. Uh, for the particular graph. So if you, um, you know, if it's very angulated neck or calcified neck with thrombus, these usually don't do so well in the vascular, and especially if it's a short neck as well. So then, you know, if we try to push the limit of the, of the endograph, um, you could have a top one endoleak. And most of these top one endoleaks happen because of that. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, for that, the treatment is to do it on the table um, by, you know, re-ballooning the, um, the neck, um, the proximal neck, you, have, you may have to uh, put a stent, like a palmar stent, a balloon expandable stent, um, or use a, yeah, you know, all these staples or, or window anchors. Um, but this is like screws that you um, use a device and you actually screw them to the wall. Uh, or you have to use one or all three of the, of the, of the above to, to reach that seal. Yeah, I love those endo anchors, by the way. They're kind of fun. I always feel like fun deploying them in the AR. I don't know why. <laughs> or something. I mean, yeah, <laughs> seriously, they're like little rivets, you know? Uh, into the, you know, the drafts drilling it into the, um, into the wall. Uh, yeah. You know, a lot of times you, you still have a, you may have a leak at the end. And, um, you know, even despite all these efforts. And, you know, if it's a really subtle leak and give a lot of camperin, um, sometimes I'll just leave it and then get the patient back in a month and see. Um, sometimes all these leaks will go in. Um, and uh, anything that's persistent, then you have to think of the next step. You need, do we, and depending on what the patient is, I mean, can we do now a 
open a street or a snorkel or, or even open, um, or if it's, you know, for your patient, the leak is very small, the energy is actually change and still out a month, you may watch it for another six months. And there's some small series showing that sometimes some of these small leaks happen in the leaks that they're small, they have no change in size, and you've already treated them. You know, the, the effort to treat them, some of them may go away. And then you have to watch them closely because you still have a few list of ruptures. So. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of frustrating when you're, you, you do everything you can to stop that type one in the primary placement and it's still there, you know, with all the treatments you suggested. You know, there's some papers that are kind of interesting, like in O'Donnell et al. in, in 2018, they, they describe how these type ones that uh, there's about 35% of them go away, you know, even after seeing it at treatment, which I, I thought was pretty interesting. I mean, and you mentioned it too, that the subtle ones can go away on your follow-up. So. It's an interesting study, but uh, in that study, every single one of them was treated initially. So it's not like we saw a lead and they left alone. Yeah. Treated. And then after treatment, especially in there, you didn't have a lot of options afterwards, you know, instead of the only thing that they had left was to do either a strong solution or watch it. So they were forced to watch it and some of them kind of, you know, went away, especially the, the ones with stable sack and small, small leaks. So it's, it gives you an option, you know, or something to think about, but, um, yeah, standard still, you know, generally speaking, especially for the young ones out there, you know, standard top one in the league is to, is to treat them, to aggressively treat it on the table. And if it's yeah. worse, you bring the patient back and do more. Perfect, perfect. What about type three in the leaks? Those are, what, what are those? So, you know, top three in the league, usually there's a, most of the integrity of the graft. You see that some of the components are not, you know, sealed together very well, or you have a, you know, breaking integrity of the graft by having a, you know, hole in it or, or um, a tear in the fabric. So that's where you can have a top three to leak. And, and these, if you identify them, you have to fix it, you know, on the table, um, again, by relining the graft mostly. And if you find it out later on with, you know, fatigue of the graft, and you've seen that with some of the earlier devices, that they come back and we have the same issue of, you know, we have some holes, you see some powder with metal, just kind of, you know, get pushed to the side and you know that there's a, you know, metal fatigue. So, we bring this patient back and reline the whole raft. And yeah. the other patient, of course, not been repaired. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. I think that's pretty straightforward. Just relight it. They're kind of fun, generally easy cases because you have all the landmarks there. But like, it can be hard depending about what graft is inside they are already. What about a gutter leak? I never even heard of a gutter leak when I was in training, let alone many of these. But what, what is a gutter leak? Yeah, I mean, it's a unique type of leak that happens only with patients that get snorkels or chimneys. So um, it's this space between the, the main endograph, the uric endograph, and the sense that go into the visceral segments, which are over chimneys or snorkels. So uh, there's usually a space in between these grafts, and, um, and that's what's called a gutter. And it communicates with the enders sac. Gutterly can be prevented by appropriately sizing the stain graft from the beginning and the, by oversizing the stain graft and the visceral uh, segment, you know, all the snorkels themselves to make them all kind of bunch up together and, you know, not have, you know, any crevices, you know, to fill the stutter and to, to go to the enders sac. And, you know, if, but if it happens, which a lot of time at the, the end of the procedure, you'll see it, that, you know, you've done all what you can, then you just watch it. So these are, one of these top one in the leaks that we watch are gutter leaks. We just watch them and see how they do. And if it's persistent, then you treat them. So I end up treating a lot of these gutter leaks for our vascular surgery colleagues. And then, you know, there's several ways to treat these. You can, you know, get a 
a catheter versus a catheter, you know, from the groin and go and hook, you know, around the visceral segments and then seek a microcatheter in between the sense into the energy sac. You can come from the arm and go yeah. and, and wedge a catheter between the sense. Or you can do a direct sac puncture and, and go, you know, up that. You know, and we'll just touch on that somewhat later, but there are ways to kind of handle these gutter leaks um, when they happen. I usually use liquid and bottles. Exactly. That was my next question. What kind of embolic and yeah, liquid embolics are good for these. I think they can be a pain in the butt too, but uh, that, yeah. Well, the gutter can be in different areas. It may not be just one gutter, maybe two, and you feel mm-hmm. like you're done and there's like another one on the other side of the Yeah. I would say, you know, if someone was starting with endoleaks, this is probably one of the harder ones to treat and the stakes are higher because you're, you're, yeah. you know, origins of the renals and SMA and I mean, you see here or there with the liquid embolic and still lower into visceral segments. So that, I would say that these are one of the harder ones to treat. And, you know, the, the other easier ones to treat are usually, you know, the top two in the league. And yeah. Speaking of type twos, which is, I think, what most of our listeners are, are pretty interested in on this podcast, uh, what is a type two in the end of league? Yeah, I mean, type two in the league is the most common one you're going to see. And it, it happens among, you know, 20, 22% of B-bars. Some studies had it as low as 10. Um, and I think with newer technology, we see it up to, you know, 20% of these patients. And basically, it's, um, you know, filling of the sac retrograde through branching the aura. So it's the lumbar arteries coming back, you know, reverse flow into the aneurysm sac, the INA, awesome thumb, median sacral artery, and, and such. So these will fill the retrograde back into the aneurysm sac and, and cause continued filling of the sac. But, you know, these are common, you know, to see at the end of the procedure. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, you know, I don't know, it feels like almost every, don't you think? Like almost every, yeah. grandma then has the same look. It, it's so true. It's it's so true. I mean, I mean, we do that. We we put suction on the sheet from their groin to kind of try to prevent it a little bit. But uh, yeah, I, you see, you know, do you, what do you think about when you see on the final angiogram, any utility to go for like, if, it, if you saw an IMA type two, is it, is it worth going for at that time? No. Yeah. Yeah, and you just see it, and they're like, "Oh, top two in the league, let's leave." That that usually you see that, and um, I mean, there's some studies early on talking about if you have a big IMA before, you know, to to try to clone it ahead of time, and you know, I think that went out of favor, and uh, basically people will, will wait till you have a persistent endoleak at six months. And once that's the case, then you, you keep that IMA to be your your way. Pathway to go back into the go back into the aneurysm. I mean, these uh, annual leaks are are low pressure, and so you know what you know are these annual leaks at risk for rupturing the aneurysm? How what are you looking at or on your follow up to see you know to treat or or not to treat the annual leak? Yeah, so that's a, a very important question. I think can they cause growth? Yes, and they have a persistent in that persistent. Talk to in the league beyond six months is associated with increased sac growth and it's been you know validated in many studies. You know, there's one study that had it as an odds ratio of like 26. So it's like an chance of actually that you know, if, if it's persistent after six months, it can lead to rupture, but that is a rare occurrence. It's in the one to two percent range of you know, top two leaks can cause aneurysm rupture. So despite the fact that it can, you know, lead to sac growth, the you know, it resulting in rupture is rare, but you know, and 
in a lot of these meta analysis of the of the large triangles that we mentioned earlier, it's you know sack rupture of you know uh, around one to two percent of the of all the indoleaks top two indoleaks that they've had. Then surprisingly, there's no increase in mortality. Um, in general, if you have the fact that you have a top two indoleak does not increase the energy related mortality. So it's something that is something you have to treat just for the fact that ruptures happen with top two indoleaks. I think, although it's rare, I think you have to treat it. It's just hard to just ignore the aneurysm. I think part of the problem, if you leave an, an, a top two endoleak with sac roof, that it can, in a mess with the proximal seal, and then move to a type one endoleak. Don't you think that that is... Something? 100%. I think that's the, yeah, that's the, the major, I think that's the one that can, can result in, like, mortality, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, and you, you leave that and it's, that keeps growing and it is, uh, you know, can lead to, to bigger issues. So, so we usually, how to handle them, I'll be interested to see how you would handle eating the leak. So you see in the leak at the end of the case, the top two in the leak, I, we, we agreed that we're going to watch this. So then they come back in the one month, we're still there. And usually it's where you're going to have to intervene on the one month scan or the top two in the leak. You're just going to leave it alone. Unless there's like significant sad growth, which is unlikely period. Agreed. Agreed. And then we'll go back at six months. And then at six months, you look at it. Right. This, most of the time, this in the league is gone. Right. So now we're going to have to deal with it. If it is um, persistent, the next question is, is the sac growing or not? If there's a sac removed, and, you know, sac removed is around, you know, you know, five millimeters, then you say, okay, fine, that's sac growth. Then, you know, there's, there's a metering, you know, errors and all the modular error for metering. But, so five millimeters, five millimeters, if there's some of that or more with a persistent type two the league, then I'll go ahead and treat it. Do you agree with that? Is that a day? I agree. I agree. I mean, I guess I do a three month after the one month. I don't know why, because I still probably wait till six months. I don't think I've ever had something at, at the three month follow-up CTA that's you know, you don't see sac growth by then either. So maybe I'll actually change my own regimen to go to six months, but I, I just get all, oh, I need to like see this closer kind of mode, you know? Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, things may change now after, after COVID and all stuff, how we, you know, how often they have to come back to the hospital and more. Totally. But then um, the next question would be if the sac size is stable and tends not changed at all and the endoleak is still there beyond six months, right? You bring them back at the one year and still there. At the one year time, the sack slide and steel. So generally speaking, I would consider treatment if the patient has multiple collaterals. For example, I see a patent IMA and, you know, two prominent lumbars. And so I know that this endoleak is never going to go away. I mean, you have big arteries feeding it. And, you know, I kind of look in the CT, if it's like really bright early on, it's like, you know, a lot of contrast. Not people all talk to endoleaks in the sea. You may have like this tiny, you know, endoleak. They only see on the venous phase. You can even find them on the arteries to, to call them and the I mean, is, is, is out. Then, you know, that's an, I would just find the losses. One of these, like with a big IMA, big lumbars, and an early arterial phase, you see a lot of contrast already in the sac. Although there's no sac growth. I would consider treating this and also treat patients with probably like chronic anticoagulation. So I know this leak is not going to go away. So these would be ones that I would consider treating despite the fact that the aneurysm sac did not grow. Not sure if it's that a lot. And there's a lot of small case series talking about solid bees, but you know, not very solid science, but that's an algorithm I cannot start working on. 
I like that algorithm. Actually, you know, when I'm faced with that conundrum at like one year, at one and a half years, and it's not growing, then I'm always like, oh, what should I do? And then usually I, I talk to my partners and I kind of get everyone's opinion, but I, I think it's, it's kind of just a gestalt feeling, but I like your, you know, kind of more objective. There's a big feeder, a big outflow, you know, you see the vessels, you know, that's not going to go away. It's kind of a more objective way of, of deciding to treat those that aren't growing. So I, I like that algorithm. I'll, I'll apply that to my practice. That concludes part one of the EndoLeaks episodes. Stay tuned for part two coming up next. Mm-hmm.